a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and this is A Plate to Call Home, conversations with fascinating people all centred around food. For those that don't know me, I love beer. In fact, I love the whole movement of the microbrewing industry right now. It's one of my greatest pleasures. So on today's episode, we talk to Jane Lewis, who's one half of Two Birds Brewing Co. And along with Danielle Allen, has become an absolute powerhouse in the microbrewing business. These two women's destinies collided with an unexpected and, quite frankly, a very funny trip overseas, which, in my mind, just goes to show you never know where you're going to end up in life. So, take a listen. Jane Lewis, you're one half of Two Birds Brewing. Danielle Allen is the other half. Where did this all start? So it all started, uh, I guess, the, the genesis of it all is a, a trip that Danielle and I did um, to the US a number of years ago, so seven years ago now. Um, uh, my husband and I were actually eloping, but she was unaware of this at this point in time and actually asked to come along on the uh, right. <laughs> on, on the holiday. So um, was she an uncomfortable third wheel? No, no, it was excellent. It was very mm-hmm. great. Uh, yeah, so I got this email saying, hey, look, I want to come on this trip with you. I've wanted to go to the US for ages, but my husband's not interested. Then we were like, yep, cool, no worries, great, that'd be wonderful. And then husband decided that he wanted to come along as well. So we went on this lovely trip to the US with, with four of us. Okay. Um, and husband's name, what's, what's your... Uh, so my husband's name is Lewis yeah. and Danielle's husband is uh, Johnny or okay. J.A. as we call him. Okay. Um, and, yep, yeah, so the four of us went on this awesome trip to the US, um, you know, starting San Francisco, doing Napa Valley, um, you know, eating in lots of great restaurants. Mm. We ate at French Laundry and um, did all sorts of great stuff like that. And then a uh, bit of time in LA and then across to, to Vegas where my husband and I. Oh, so I was just about to ask uncomfortably, was yes. it a Vegas wedding it dressed was, as Elvis? Uh, we, no, no Elvis, but it was a drive through wedding. It was a drive through wedding. Yes. So See, I thought that was going to be a joke, but it's not. So <laughs> it's not can a you, joke. Can you describe this drive through <laughs> wedding? I know it's not on beer, but it sounds quite funny. Yeah, no. So you deliberately eloped to the US yes. to go to Vegas to do a drive through wedding. This is correct. Yeah. Why was that a dream? Just curious. Um, yeah, well, uh, look, we would never been that keen on um, weddings. No issue with marriage, okay. just not that massively keen on weddings. So we, my husband and I had always joked that um, if we were going to get married, it was always going to be in Vegas. We got in, actually got invited to a wedding there. And so we were like, well, we're going. So should we do this thing while we're there? Uh, and then it was like, okay, well, what's the funnest kind of way that we can think of? And drive through seemed like a pretty pretty drive good idea. What were we driving through in? What was the car? We got a we got a big stupid limousine and uh, did all of it. Did it? Did it? You know. <laughs> and the, how does that work? Does the celebrant jump in the car with you, or <laughs> is it out of a hatch? You know, like delivering a burger. That kind of thing? <laughs> we actually got out of the car, but yes, they're inside the uh, the building at the the window, and then you stand outside, and uh, you know they deliver you your um, marriage certificate and uh, so fast food and fast marriage. Yes. So sit, how long ago was that? So that was, uh, we're about to have our seventh wedding, wedding anniversary okay. next month. So. It, at, at any time, this is not about beer either, no. at any time have you thought, oh, we should get married properly <laughs> now, like and have a, no. you don't want a marshmallow wedding with a- No, I'm good. It'll only cost you 40000 you know? <laughs> No, I'm good. We had a ce- celebration with all our family and friends okay. when we got home and, and that was that was perfect. That cool. was exactly what we wanted to do and it removed all of the, the stresses that I think can come along with weddings. Right. So g- rewinding yes. before that trip then. Sure. Which is interesting in itself. I love that. <laughs> Danielle and yourself, you, you, how far do you go back? Like 
how do you so where did you meet? We are both Perth born and bred. Um, we actually met via our and now husbands who were housemates um, back in Perth during their their uni days. So we met our husbands when we were sort of 19, okay. 20, and then we met through through them effectively. Okay. And what were you doing? What were you two doing at the time? Uh, I was at uni. I was studying winemaking. So okay. that's kind of where everything started for me. Yeah. Um, you said that as if it was a bit of a downer. No, no, yeah. I love. I was at uni and studying winemaking. <laughs> no, no, you can be because I'm going to cotton onto it and go. So you're at uni studying winemaking. Yes. Why were you at uni studying winemaking? <laughs> um, well, I, I guess when I left school, I, I've got this really sciencey brain, but I don't like, you know, not so much with the sitting down. So, wanted to do something that was kind of a practical application yeah. of science. So, winemaking seemed interesting, and, and so I thought I'd give that. Um, a shop. So, yep, studied that. At why uni. did it seem interesting? I mean, can I kind of tap into sure. why winemaking seemed interesting? I mean, hey, you'd been one of those cheeky kids that was sipping homemade wine at age 10 uh, out of a little <laughs> fermenting bottle or? Um, it's not homemade. No one else in my family drinks. Um, okay. So, yep, I've gone the whole gamut. I've done wine, cider and beer and um, so dabbled in that whole side of things. I don't know. I just really like the, I guess, expressive element of of those kind of things. And yeah, having a having a product, having a thing at the end of it all. Um, you know, I sort of yeah. looked at all different stuff, parts of science, like um, a lot of the crime based kind of things was quite interesting to me as well. Okay. But um, so when you were fourteen or fifteen, yeah, had you sipped your first wine and thought, "I like that. That's something I might want to do." Yeah. Or were you sipping your first wine, dreaming of being a criminologist or something. <laughs> no, look, I think uh, I think early on it was a lot of, you know, sweet stuff. In my era, it was lemon ruskies and all that kind of rubbish. Oh, yeah, so classy. Oh, yeah, so yeah, classy. classy. I drank a lot of passion pop and uh, <laughs> Pleasant Valley. So everything you try and teach your kids not to drink, exactly. you were drinking. I did all of it, yep. Setting absolutely. your palate up for greatness. <laughs> Is that what it was? Yep, totally. So I started off on the sweet stuff, but I really quickly moved away from that um, into – yeah, I really loved flavour. Okay. So that was before you went it. to uni. Before I went to uni, can you remember a moment where you tasted something and thought, "Oh, that was delicious"? Not especially. There's no kind of light bulb moment uh, at that point in time. But yeah, I just quite liked that whole. Um, yeah, just like the idea of wine and and taking and expressing something that was being grown in the vineyard and, yeah. and then being able to sort of show that in a way. Um, so what course, what what did the course teach specifically? Is it viticulture or is it a broad-based? Yeah, it was a Bachelor of Science in Viticulture and Enology, so yeah. winemaking, grape growing. Um, and so, yeah, we learnt the whole, the whole thing from start to finish. Yeah. So year in, what were you thinking? Year uh, into the course, what were you thinking? Where was your brain going at? What were you looking forward to? Yeah, oh, look, I was really loving it. I... Um, definitely felt early on that I was, you know, because obviously there's sort of a, a almost a split when, when a lot of people do these classes and you either go into the to the viticulture, the grape growing side of it, or you go into winemaking and winemaking was definitely the, the part of it that interested me. I was not so much with the agricultural side of things. I was more with the manufacturing side of things, yeah. which I guess is sort of part of where I've ended up now. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that part of it, being able to take something, do, you know, process it, Go through the go through the different motions and then come out with something at the other end that expressed, you know, where that had come from. Yeah. What did it, what excited you about it at the time making a wine? I How did it develop? Didn't do any 
actual work in it until I'd finished my degree. Mm-hmm. I worked in cellar door um, during uni as my, you know, kind of my weekend job and the thing that kept food on my plate and wine in my, <laughs> in belly, my, in my belly. Yeah. Um, so, and I'd been quite has- hospitality minded prior to that. So um, that kind of made sense to me at that at that point in time and didn't get in the way of what I, and my study times. Um, so it wasn't actually until I had finished that I actually started doing the work, which I think was a bit of a, uh, not a rude shock, but, you know, everyone has these grand romantic notions yeah. of what something like winemaking is. And in essence, it's black hands that are never clean. It's, you know, chapping, it's um, long sticky days working the press it's a whole lot of stuff that i had yeah. never really how long was the course just out of curiosity three years and you didn't want to go you did you hadn't worked on a vineyard in that three years oh i worked on a vineyard i did some did some pruning and realized that that was it was cold and it was hard work. wet and my hands were so sore by yeah, the end really of the day like, so when when did this light bulb moment was there a light bulb moment or has this just been a progression into brewing beer and starting your own company which is two birds brewing I think part of it is progression. So the the time when I decided that I wanted to get into beer was I was sitting at Little Creatures in mm. Fremantle, which, yeah. you know, yeah, just sitting there drinking a beer, looking around. The other thing, obviously, with Little Creatures is that the brewery is right there. So it's a whole lot of stainless steel mm. and I love industrial stuff. It's, you know, it gets me going. So I was sitting there <laughs> looking at all of this, just going, yeah, this this has got me written all over it. I... I I, at some stage, I remember saying it out loud to whoever I was with saying, I will work in this company at some point in time. Mm. And I think uh, that was probably about 12 to 18 months or so before I ended up um, actually working there. So I had been, you know, at this time, my now husband was living in Perth and I was living in Margaret River and we'd done that for three years and had been sort of going back and forward and had decided that, yep, maybe moving to the city would be something that I had wanted to do. Um, job came up in the newspaper. Literally, they advertised it in the, the West Australian the job? and job for a brewer at Little Creatures and I applied and they gave it to me. I lied in my interview. <laughs> you lied in your interview? <laughs> Oh, we want to know about they're, this. They're, what did you say? <laughs> they're well aware of this. I had uh, <laughs> subsequently they found out. <laughs> I had said that I was home. Uh, I had homebrewed before, which was an absolute lie. Um, turned out that that was not the reason they hired me anyway. So it was so it was okay. Um, right. And but yeah, I walked in with literally zero idea how the brewing process operated. Did I you hadn't a, even. Did you do a quick swap? I didn't even. I feel bad Jonas now. That, disgrace. I know, isn't it? I just didn't even didn't even bother to do any research. So all of a sudden, all these memories of interviewing <laughs> chefs and yeah. being deceived are flooding back mm-hmm. as you described it. So you hadn't even swatted, and no. you would have been a wrap. You could wrap off the process and no, no, tell no. them you were passionate about a particular thing. No, no, I didn't know anything about it to be honest. I okay. I think I had a vague idea about what might have gone into it, but and I knew about how to. I guess the processing side of it, I was like, I can use pumps, I can do things, I can clean stuff. I'm, you know, have it from the winemaking background. I have yeah. all of that. So, um, I think that's quite funny. Yeah. So I walked in. Who interviewed you? Green as hell. Um, the, do you remember? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I remember because I stupidly, they asked me if I wanted a coffee and I said, no, I'll have a tea. And the um, 
palaver that ensued was just like, oh, you so have not got yeah. this job. You are an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's running around trying to find a tea bag. Yeah, trying did to you, find Did you drill down on that? Did you ask for a lemongrass and ginger, for no, example? Because that's always another way of taking yeah. it up the level. Yeah, no, it was the worst. I was like, oh, that's not happening even slightly. Okay. Why did you get the job? Uh, I believe the winemaking background was uh, in my favour because effectively at that time there were pretty much no one had experience in brewing. Um, so at least to have experience in a related industry gave me a real, um, I guess, a, a leg up uh, from a lot of other people. Um, yeah. And apparently, actually, the homebrewing was not uh, – people who had homebrewing experience were, were not necessarily viewed in the most favourable fashion. And why is that? <laughs> um, I think it's very difficult to to go from – Home brewing to commercial brewing. Yeah. I think that there's some. some so quite. there's really no connection. It's a bit like I, I mean, I look there at is it connection as a course. chef. Yes. It's a bit like doing home ec yes. at school. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember going to college and they said, "No, no, you don't need to have done home ec. Yeah, like baking right. scones for four <laughs> is not going to set you up for a career in hospitality." Yes. The fact that you didn't home brew didn't make any difference. There's obviously a massive difference between home brewing and commercial yeah, brewing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There is. There is a. Um, there's a definite difference between brewing at home and then brewing on a commercial scale. Obviously, there's the the equipment is is quite different from a scale perspective and then also just from an operational perspective as you well. You know, though, so. I'm, I'm going to say this, though. It's interesting. I think the commercial world uh, viewed MasterChef in a very cynical way when it started off. But what they've realised over the years is that the amateurs bring a certain level of interest, obsession yes. and creativity. Do you reckon there's any evidence of that in home brewing? Yeah, look, definitely. and Because they'd be crazy obsessed. They're not doing it for money. No, They're absolutely. They're doing it to to have a nice drink. Yeah, exactly. There is there is a level of passion there that is, um, yeah, unsurpassed in, to an extent. So the people who are home brewing are obviously really engaged and, and just really love what they do and love the experimentation and, and then also a lot of the sharing process as well. Mm. What do they say about your beer? Um, look, we've had a, a lot of great support. We've There's actually a home brewing competition that we have offered a prize for. So, um, you know, one of the, the people who've, who've won that competition can come in, do a brew day with us and, and hang out and sort of learn how the difference is between mm. between what they're doing and, and on a commercial scale and, and how all of that fits What's together. What's that competition so. called? Do you know what? Uh, it was the Westgate Brewers um, and they had a stout competition. So the, the, the award-winning stout gets to come and... Brew with us. I love it. Sounds yeah. great. And all these, and now I know that there's a Westgate Brewers Association somewhere. Uh huh. I don't know what that means to me. Many, but it's... many, many homebrew clubs around the place who yeah. do these kind of things. And there's some amazing um, beers coming out of coming out of these um, homebrewing clubs. How did, how did you start? Because we're jumping forward a bit. Yeah. So Danielle and yourself have decided to do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, did we say was it a light bulb moment, or did you kind of you've got I know where we, we were haven't. At. We haven't. We really went got sideways. To know. Yep. So you working at um, you working at Little Creatures in in WA. How long were you there? I was there for about three and a half years, okay. and then I got um, a phone call from my husband saying, "Hey, I've got been given this opportunity to set up the Melbourne um, base of my company." I said, "When are we going?" Right. Um, and then so we moved to moved to Melbourne ten years ago now. So on the beer making at Little Creatures, mm. did did you? Did you fall in love with the process? Like you, you've obviously gone. I can do this. I love the industrial side of it. Mm. How did 
how did you enjoy that? How did it? How did you develop as a beer maker in at Little Creatures? Yeah, well, obviously I went from zero, um, so it was a massive learning curve, um, but one that I really got a massive kick out of, just sort of working out how all of the um, ingredients can fit together and how everything works. It was, I mean, there wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, everything was set, the recipes were set. It was just mm. here you go, do your thing, execute this. Yeah. Over and over and over again. So from a oh, commercial look, we're sense. We're brewing pale ale again today. Yeah. Yep. So from a commercial sense, you, you're working to very strict parameters and it's about quality control, I suppose. Absolutely. So I learned, uh, I got such a good grounding in process and just execution and consistency and just doing it right every single damn day. Um, yeah. So they're some of the, the fussiest, most intense um, brewers that I've met in a very positive way and it was such a good, yeah, such a good thing for me to build my career on and I see some of the brewers out there who've worked at Little Creatures and they, without fail, always go on to do amazing stuff because of everything that we learn in that space. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Did you ever get to play? Did you ever... Because in Little Creatures, you've got Rogers beer. I mean, there's a, they've, they're now producing a number of different beers, haven't they? But ownership's changed and exactly. things have changed, I presume. Yeah. So, no, there was, there was that was just not one of the things that we got to do. It was uh, these are the recipes yeah. and this is what you do. And, and um, But, yeah, that wasn't necessarily the worst thing for where I was at in my career as well. I was pretty much happy to, to uh, just be a sponge, yeah. literally just take in as much information as I could. I yeah. absolutely loved the process. It was a really... Um, it was a very intense period of my life. I worked, I mean, I worked vintages and I thought they were intense and this was more than that because it was every single day of my life. Um, you know, we used to look, we worked a lot of long hours. Um, but I think on top of that, it really bonded me with the people that I was working with at that point in time. I think, you know, sometimes yeah. hardships can, um, yeah. bring people together. But it's the bitter and sweet, isn't it? Yeah. Is it a delicate process? I mean, you risk, you know, it's a living thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, look, I think it is a delicate process. And I guess what I've always had to hold it up against is um, is wine. And with beer, you've got these conditions of um, a pH and kind of low alcohol that are really susceptible to, you know, microbial um, contamination. Mm. Whereas with wine, it's got super low pH and the alcohol is through the roof. Nothing wants to live in it, really. Uh, so it kind of protects itself. You can be quite, I'm going to use the word dirty here as a winemaker, um, because you don't necessarily need to to protect the wine as much as you do with something like beer. So beer, you've got to be just scrupulously clean in everything that you do. And yeah, you're pretty much, uh, you're like a gatekeeper for the beer. Your job is to to kind of, uh, not mollycoddle it, but, but just guide it through this process and, yeah. and keep so everything no else away. So no unwanted yes. other yeast, bacteria, yeast contaminants. Yeast, bacteria, all that sort of See, stuff. See, I thought it would be the opposite. I thought it would be something that's kind of living and doing its own thing and you'd encourage all sorts of kind of stuff, and there's definite, bubbly things. There's definitely parts of that that there is. So there's a lot of people, especially these days, and I guess as um, people become more aware of the different um, – the different beers and the different flavours, there's a lot more people who are doing the wild, sour, all of that kind of stuff where you can embrace a bit more of the, the native mm. flora, so to speak. But, um, yeah, in the to, to me, in the com- kind of commercial beers, the, the sort of the things that, that we're making, 
we're trying to do it the same every single time and that remain that means we just have to we have to be in control of the process. Yeah. We can't let something else control the process. Can you break the process down? Because yeah. I think probably everybody thinks they know how you make a beer, but how do you essentially make a beer? Yeah, okay. Uh, so starts out with malted barley. Uh, so And what does malting mean? What yeah, so mean? going back a step from that, um, you know, barley, you've seen it out there. Yeah. Growing, do with any country drive and you'll come across it in Australia. Um it goes to the maltings whereby they actually allow it to, to start to germinate. So it starts to grow a little um, shoot, starts to put out some roots. Uh, and then what they actually do is they effectively dry it, put it into a, like a state of suspended animation. Um, they can also, so, you know, there's there's base malt, which is just standard stuff that you use in, in a brew. And then there's a whole lot of different, specialty malts that are available as well from these kind of crystal malts that effectively when they they go through like a stewing process right at the end that turns the sugar inside it into like a sugar crystal so that when you bite into one of these grains you you know take it away it's like a demerara sugar kind of kernel inside the malt and then there's there's also roast malt as well which is you know just like I guess with coffee it's gone through a big roasting drum and it's black and it's acrid and uh, you only need a really small percentage of it in order to actually give it a really intense flavour and also that you know black colour that you get from things like stouts. Uh, so barley, malted barley. There's also malted wheat and some other low, lots of other grains. Just like everything that's happening, there's rye, there's spelt, there's you know you name it. There's uh, there's a lot of oats as well. Yep. Um, so malted barley, um, we effectively mix that with water at a, a really specific temperature and then what's happening is inside the barley back in the malting process there's a whole lot of starch and then once you mix it with the water what you're doing is you're causing an enzymatic reaction to take place and then that's going through breaking up all the starches turning them into sugar because sugar is what we want later on because that's the basis for all of our alcohol production yep so yep getting all this sugar forming we extract all of the sh- all of the liquid phase from the solid phase effectively put that into a kettle it's called a kettle so you strain it yeah yep as good as <laughs> um and then put it into this kettle boil it away with so this is where we add the hops right um so very specific ingredient to beer um responsible for all of the bitter compounds and then also responsible for a lot of the flavor and aroma um that people would associate with beer this you know when I talked about little creatures pale before yeah. it um had all of these fruity characters that that you know we were unaccustomed to but so hops can throw anything from tropical fruit citrus grassy berries you kind of name it a lot of these very fruity kind of characters um are we, they coming from because uh, we're growing a lot of hops in Australia Tasmania yes absolutely Tasmania up near bright as well um New South Wales, they're actually kind of popping up all over the place at the moment. Yeah, it's great. So hops, just finish that. So what characteristics do the hops give? So these are a really crucial part of the beer making process. When I think of beer, I think of hops. Absolutely, because they are specific for beer. You know, in order to be labelled as beer, you have to have a percentage of hops being Mm. used in it. So, uh, yeah, so they, yeah, can give the really fruity, tropical, passion fruit, um, grassy, 
berries. There's a whole kind of range, a whole spectrum. And um, is that based on the recipe you're using or how you treat it, like the way you're extracting the flavours, or is it where you get your hops from or the type of hop? All of the above, yeah, exactly. So um, the hops themselves have a general uh, general characters that they will throw, and then it also depends on how you utilise them. So when I'm talking about using it in the kettle, if you use the hops at the beginning of the um, the boil, so you boil for 60 minutes. If you put the hops in at the beginning, then they, you'll get a lot of the bitterness extracted. If you're adding the hops towards the end, because all of the the flavour and aroma compounds are effectively essential oils, so they will disappear up the stack. They're volatile. Yeah. They'll they'll disappear into the atmosphere if you put too much heat on them, right? Same thing with cooking. Yeah. Uh, so if you add them towards the end, then you get that flavour and aroma compounds extracted into the beer, and then they, they stay there. Um, and then we also add a stack of hops um, actually into the fermenter as well. So when the beer is is cold, um, and that has a quite a different character. It's like making well. a sauce. It sounds yeah. like it's like an alchemy of flavours, isn't it? And flavour compounds. It's lovely. Yeah. So, so you play around with that to get the result you want. Exactly. Multi. And different hops have different floral. Eff- effects at different times. And yeah. so there's certain hops that we don't put anywhere near the kettle because we don't like the character that they throw. We only ever add them to the fermenter um, because we think that's the way it, the way it works best. And... We're also, a lot of what we do is um, a lot of the, the beers that we make in our limited release range, so the things that we just do small batches of, we use a lot of the, the things from cooking. So we we use a lot of strange ingredients and we'll often use them the way you would in cooking. So for example, for example we have, you know, one of our, the, the beers that we actually have ongoing is called Taco. So it's Mexican inspired. It's got, we actually add um, flaked corn to the mash. And then we add lime peel, some of it in the kettle, and then also some of it in the dry hop. And we actually wash up whole bunches of fresh coriander and they get added into the fermenter. So they actually extract that really fresh, zesty coriander note. Interesting. Whose idea was that? Well, you've just been playing around and gone, I'm going to start chucking (laughs) fresh ingredients in. Pretty much. And you put your hand up. Yeah. On radio, no one can see that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so actually, Danielle and I, another trip that we had done to the US when we were kind of looking for a bit of inspiration, we had to come up with a name with a beer for a, for a festival. Um, we were in San Diego. We'd just been having all these amazing kind of you know fish tacos with all these awesome fresh characters. So we're like, how can we take that? And so yeah, we decided to 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 put all of these flavours together and we put it into this festival and then it had such a cult following that we literally had people uh, campaigning on social media to get us to make it again so that it's now become part of our ongoing range. After the break, we delve deeper into the process of brewing and what makes the beers at Two Birds different. So stay with us. So you moved to Melbourne. Worked for Mountain Goat. How long did you work for Mountain Goat for? About three and a half years. Okay. I was head brewer there. Had you started to properly fall in love with beer at this point? Yes. I had honestly fallen out of love with beer at the end of Little Creatures and I had actually studied, uh, was enrolled to study vet science when I got a call from Mountain Goat saying, hey, we want you to... to oh, so you were going to do a career I change. I was going to do a career change. I was almost oh. lost to the brewing industry. But, Why? Um, Why was that? Um, I was I was burnt out to be honest. Um, just a, a bit done with it all, and, and just hadn't wasn't inspired. What was it about Mountain Goat that re-inspired you? Uh, look, they've got a it's an amazing company. I love Cam and Dave, um, who were the owners. They yeah, 
just kind of drew me back in and, and made me remember why I loved beer. So, um, yeah, completely reinvigorated me um, and then, yeah, inspired me to go and start remember, my own business. So how do you go from working – because pretty much everybody knows Mountain Goat. How do you go from working at Mountain Goat to having an idea of opening a beer brewing business yourself? Where does this come from? It came from a desire to be – I guess, a part of the entire process. So obviously brewing, I was sort of you know, leading that part of the operation within the company, but I wanted to be a part of all of it. I wanted to be a part of the marketing. I wanted to be a part of, I just wanted to be across it all, yeah. which was sort of the realisation that I was never going to get that working for, for anyone else. So the only way for that was to actually start my own business. And I had been saying this to Danielle and then she had said, hey, well, I think I can be that other part and I believe in you. So let's do this thing. Let's, let's start, let's start this brewery. And the name? Two Birds Brewing, Australia's first female owned brewing company. <laughs> That's a great tagline. Who came up with that? <laughs> uh, the, we probably didn't even realise, oh no, we definitely realised at the time. It was, uh, yeah, it was, to me at the time, it was crazy that it was 2011 and we didn't have, you know, an all female owned brewing company. It just seemed, it seemed nuts. Why, why was that? Why is that? Uh, I guess beer's traditionally, I guess everything about beer has been very male dominated. Um, you know, probably myself growing up, all of the uh, the advertising around beer, you know, hard-earned thirsts, all that kind of stuff. I think that informed a lot of people's, um, I guess, ideas about beer in this country. Um, and so it informs who drinks beer. And then if you don't drink beer, then you're certainly not going to go on to make it. So I think that, yeah, it's still strange to people when I tell them that I'm a, that I'm a brewer. Um, I find that amazing. Yeah. I really do. Actually. I know. Because actually when you look back in history, they used to have what they call gin street because everyone was drinking gin, gin in London because no one could drink the water. Yes. So you either drank gin or beer and then yes. everybody was just basically drunk. <laughs> and so I believe, and I may be wrong, that it was almost a government campaign to get people off gin because they were drinking so much gin, because it was the only safe way of consuming liquid, to drinking beer. Yes. Because it had less alcohol in it. And so people could, if you're on Gin Street, you were washed up and you were close to the devil. If you're on Beer Street, you're in much better place. Yeah, sure. So, and that was a few hundred years ago. That's 400 years ago or something. So why do we end up with a, a drink that's only seen as something that you've got to have a ute, wear a pair of shorts and a pair of work boots to, to enjoy? Yeah, and I honestly believe it's a it's a marketing thing because you, I mean, luckily, lucky enough with what we do to get to travel a lot and you go somewhere like Belgium and you sit in a square in Belgium and there are women of all ages just casually enjoying a beer because it's part of what they do and, and it's no one's ever told them that it's a man's thing. There's yeah. none of this expectation, yeah. whereas... You know, it's it's it is still a fairly firmly held belief that yeah, beer is what men drink. So, what was the response like when you started the company? Yeah, the response has been amazing. Everyone's been incredibly supportive from the industry. Um, you know, I guess when I started out, when I'm 15 years ago, there was myself and one other. I was aware of one other female brewer in the entire country, um, but it's been nothing but you know, warm, it's, it's never, it's just never really been a thing. It's yeah. never factored in within the actual brewing industry. It's, it's definitely more a sort of a public perception, um, thing that has been, yeah, people find it a bit, um, uh, novelty is not the right word, but yeah, have found it to be quite an interesting yeah. point. So if you knew of only one other female 
in the brewing industry at the time. Are there now more females in the brewing industry? Yeah, look, there's been a, a massive increase in, in the number of females actually related to the brewing industry. And um, part of that has been, I have, I've been president of a um, society called the Pink Boot Society, which was just about, um, I guess, creating a, a sort of a networking platform and connecting all of the, the female the females involved in beer, not necessarily brewers, but who sort of gain any income from beer, so yep. if they're in sales or, or whatever else. Um, and we do a lot of scholarships and, and just provide some support, you know. It's not like anyone's had anything horrible go wrong. It's just a, it's nice for us to be able to kind of put all of these people together and they're all incredibly like-minded and, and wonderful people. But, yeah, it's amazing to me, even since 2011 um, when we started, how many, how much the, the, the females presence has grown both in the female drinkers and also, um, you know, actually within the industry. Yeah. And so, for example, now at uni, mm-hmm. are there women at uni that are going, yeah, I want to go into brewing? Yeah. Look, it's uh, we only have one course here in, in Australia, but I believe there is definitely more females coming in through that and then yeah, through other avenues as yeah. well. And what's changing the rules in terms of uh, women drinking beer? Uh, I think, again, uh, people are just kind of connecting with flavour and I think less of the – I think the perceptions about um, who drinks beer are changing and I, I like to think that we kind of helped with that a little bit, that um, you know, being out there and, and pushing our our company and, and then showing people that it's not necessarily what you expect it is. And women are amazing when you when you actually give them – a beer and they're so great with identifying flavours and um, are quite open-minded about stuff as well. So, yeah. um, and especially you give them things like a dark beer where they think they're going to hate it because they just think it's not what it's going to be and then it can be really sweet and rich and it plays into a lot of characters that, that can be quite familiar and, and um, quite enjoyable. Yeah. Well, it goes back to that, uh, se- you know, what we call in the industry is session beers, mm. you know, so that male-dominated, you mm. know, I'm drinking a VB and slamming, you know, seven, eight, nine beers. Yeah. It's not a great place to be. And actually beer drinking's changed, doesn't it? Not just for women but for men too. Definitely. I enjoy a couple of really beautiful beers and mm. also pairing beer with food. So the whole dynamic of beer drinking, totally different to what it was, say, 15 years ago, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I honestly believe that there is any dish you can make, I guarantee you, I can find a beer that will pair with it better than any wine. Ooh, yeah. that's bold, isn't yeah. it? There's <laughs> because, now thousands of winemakers getting upset. Absolutely. Explain. Well, why. because there's so many flavours that you that, that, that beer can kind of cross over that I guarantee that anything that you can put into a dish, I can draw out that character through a beer so that it will, put, will pair better than, than any wine. And looking at the beers that you make now, because you make a number of different beers. Yes. Give yeah. me an example. Yeah, well, so look, I mean, I guess we like to play around with, with flavours and, um, you know, we've done... We've done beers inspired by red velvet cupcakes. So we've done um, things with cacao and vanilla. Oh, hang on a minute. Stick with the red velvet cupcakes. How do you get a beer to reflect a a red velvet (laughs) cupcake? So the great thing that we've got, we've got the ability to obviously play with with colour and a little bit of, we don't have texture necessarily, which is something obviously that, mm. that chefs use a lot of. Um, so, but, you know, using the cacao, using the vanilla, we made a red ale so that it has the, the colour and then we also nitrogenated it as well so that it has Sorry, that. Sorry, nitrogenated. Yeah. So like when you pour, pour a, uh, a Guinness, right? You yeah. know how it has the, ah, the, the different. little smooth, smooth kind of head on it. Exactly. So we then use nitrogen to kind of, I guess, mimic that icing that you would get. Okay, so on you the get top. a very fine, smooth, exactly. creamy top on it. Exactly. That's clever. I like that. Mm, so a lot of that kind of stuff. So 
I just think there's such a there's such a range of flavours in beer that, that it's mm. just always going to go. So with. something, but so something based on a red velvet cupcake. And yep. I cut you off because I drilled down onto the detail. Give me a couple yeah. of others. Uh, so obviously we've talked about taco. Um, one of the we love Vietnamese food. You know, in the western yeah, suburbs, we've, we're food. just down the road from um, Footscray Markets. So you know, one of the beers we did was Rice Rice Baby, and it had Vietnamese mint. It had lemongrass. It had um, you know some lemon peel and. Um, yeah, just all of these really lovely fresh flavors. Fresh, and did you, fresh do you then use, say, rice or roasted yeah. rice or things like that as part of the yep. fermenting process? Absolutely. So we use rice in the uh, in the mash tun as well. And, and the thing that rice does, it's actually traditionally used by the large brewers. Like, so Asahi's got a really large mm. um, proportion of rice in, and it, what it does, it makes it super dry. Um, so we've used used that in the mash tun as well. So two birds brewing. Where do, where do people go to taste your beer? Try your beer. Uh, so we've got a stack of tap points around the country and obviously around Melbourne, but uh, people can come down to our brewery and tasting room in Spotswood. So we're in Spotswood, just though. over the West Gate. What's uh, the address? It is one three six Hall Street in Spotswood. You always got to give things a plug when given the opportunity. Yeah. Danielle would be rapping you over the back of the knuckle. I know. You I know that, don't you? She's going, you missed an opportunity. Slow on the update. Yeah. And, and website is? Uh, website, twobirdsbrewing.com.au. But it's got the story on. It's got the it's got beers the, that you produce. Absolutely. Everything and, you could want to know and more, I'm sure. And didn't you produce a beer for George? I did, absolutely, yeah. yeah. We had Hellenic George Ale. George Colin Burris at George, Hellenic in exactly. Williamstown, is yep. that right? So we had Hellenic Ale, which um, was, we actually used the Greek mountain tea um, and we used Zeus hops because, you know, obviously named after a Greek god, why yeah. would you not? Sounds great, doesn't it? I tried it, it was good, I loved it. Excellent. Yeah, and I thought it was really nice that he'd approach you or you'd approach him and connected the dots. It's really lovely. Yeah. The future of Two Birds Brewing? Um, look, obviously more, more beer out into the world, more beer in people's hands. We've, um, just installed our own bottling line and, and just done a bit of a refresh of the brand. So yeah, just pushing forward and getting it out into, to more places. Is there strife in big business brewing? I'm only asking that because and I know it's a bit political, but obviously the big breweries have lost some of their traction in recent years. And if you said Melbourne, everybody would go CUB, but you say Melbourne now, and often people go to Birds Brewing or, um, you know, Mountain Goat, they say different things. Absolutely. There's so many new people coming on board. There's so many new brewing companies opening and, um, yeah, there's so many options out there that, you know. Mind blowing. Yeah, exactly. It's on everybody to get out there and try something new and, and support the small guys. I mean, these guys, these people can only keep going if yeah. if people are buying their beers. So love it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I could have talked for hours about this because I've only just got started, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I, do, I love beer, and, and I shouldn't say this because it's consumption of food really that makes me uh, tubby. There's no such thing as a beer belly. There isn't. Um, but I do, I do love a beer in preference to most other things. And often I'll go to a place and they go glass of champagne, and I go, "You got a nice beer?" Because yeah. I much prefer the bubbles in beer to champagne. Absolutely. So thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Once upon a time, it used to be beer at the bar, wine at the table. In fact, the change that's happened over the last, say, 20 years with microbrewing is the fact that beers are now much more complex, full of flavour and lots of different flavours. So they do actually pair with food brilliantly well. So have a go and start tasting different beers. You'll love it. And for the perfect beer batter, why not try this? Cup of self-raising flour, half a cup of corn flour, and my secret ingredient half a cup of custard powder. Yep, you heard me right. It gives it a lovely, crispy, golden colour and tastes delicious. I add half a teaspoon of bicarb soda, pinch of salt, bottle of beer, preferably from Two Birds Brewing, and off you go. Best beer batter you've ever tasted. 
A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski, executive producer Jamie Shu. audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. 